Father, we are so privileged to understand that goodness and to simply reflect on it and to sing it and to understand your grace that holds on to us. We thank you for all this. And as we come to your word now to open it, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that he might uh, fill us, Lord, in ways that we need to appreciate and understand how in this passage today that your spirit is there and teaching us and drawing us into all truth. And so guide us in these things, we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. If you've been around, you know that for the last many months, we have been working our way through the book of Acts, a tremendous, uh, tremendous book in the Bible, of course, all, all of them are, all scriptures inspired, and of course, is profitable. The book of Acts is unique in that it's the follow-up of Luke's gospel, and he continues this story and continues to unfold it. And as we are engaged in this, sometimes we cover passages that kind of delve deep into some doctrinal issues, and there's some sort of some teaching that might really stir us and, and uh, kind of convict us in some very specific ways about our devotion. And other weeks, it's kind of some passages that you kind of go, what are we going to get out of all this? And I have to admit, when Dwayne assigned me this particular passage, I was like, okay. Lord, what do we get out of all this today? Because it's, it's an interesting in a passage. So I wanted to remind us, because I think it's important to go all the way back to the beginning of when we started. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is kind of seen as a geographical outline for the book of Acts. Back there, Jesus in his ascension, he says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. The book of Acts is a book about the Holy Spirit's work. It's the continuing story of Jesus as being demonstrated through his spirit in this world. And Jesus says the plan is to start in Jerusalem, spread out to Judea, kind of the neighboring uh, area, and probably still mostly Jewish in nature, but then Samaria, crossing cultures. And as we cross cultures, that there is this explosion to the very ends of the earth. And this is our pattern of witness. And this is kind of the geographical outline that happens through the book of Acts that we see in Pentecost in Jerusalem, that first day, the outpouring of God's Spirit on those who had gathered during the great festival and the apostles preach and the church begins. And then from there it begins to spread and Peter's identified primarily as the apostle to the Jews. Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Although in chapter 10 you have that interesting little moment that Peter is the one who's used in Cornelius' life. Do you remember that? The first Gentile. And, and that whole uh, just demonstration of what God is doing among all of the world. But Paul, as the apostle of the Gentiles, begins his missionary journeys through the known parts of Asia and through the Roman Empire. And as we've been following along through the book, there's this geographical and cultural outline played out through all of these books. And we've worked our way week by week. And as we've come into 18 to 20, we primarily for the last couple of weeks spent our time in Ephesus. And that's where Marcio had us last week. This third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And he spends two years there in Ephesus teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. 
Remember that? He started off in the synagogue, and then the synagogue kind of rejected him, and he moved over. And for two years, he was preaching daily there. So that in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, it says that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this expansion of what is taking place as it expands through all the words. So great days of teaching accompanied by miraculous signs and the word of the Lord growing in power. And so Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And then we come to today's section, Acts 19 to 20, or Acts 19, 21 into chapter 20. And we have five sections that we're going to cover. There's five sort of differing parts, and they line up this way. You can see on the slide, there's three sections that are really itinerary notes. It's notes about Paul moving from one place to another and who he went with and how they traveled. And you kind of go, okay, interesting, but what do we do with it? <laughs> you know, God's, where's this deep spiritual conviction that, I, that I'm expecting, knowing that Paul went by ship from here to there? You know, it's kind of hard to sink my spiritual teeth into that. But it's interesting what God is doing through all this. And then there's these two highlights that are going to take place. There's this riot that takes place in Ephesus. We'll spend some time there. And then there's this all-nighter in uh, Troas. It's a lot of scripture to cover this morning. I'm going to read most of it for us. Because as we've been moving through, I know our pastor loves us to have reading, to read the scriptures. And so we'll basically have read all of Acts by the time we're done. So I'm being faithful to that today. We're going to read all of these different passages and kind of take notes of why these are there. Why does Luke spend time writing these things to us? All Scripture is useful to us. It's profitable. It teaches us. It corrects us. It, it draws us forward. And sometimes you need to take a bigger picture of some of these passages to see how it fits into the overall arch of what is taking place in his writing. So we begin, first part, the first itinerary note, chapter 19, verses 21 to 22. We read there that after all this had happened, all that we covered last week in Ephesus, two years of teaching, miracles, people being healed just by touching the cloths that have come from the Apostle Paul. You know, incredible stuff happening. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now, this seems like a travelogue, but there's a couple of key points that come up in there that Luke's helping us to see that tie into his larger theme of what is going on in the mission of his gospel. Note these two key destinations of Paul's mind. He says, I've decided to go to Jerusalem. All right, Paul has set his mind and his heart now to return down Jerusalem. The mission is wrapping up. They're going to return back to the starting place, back to Jerusalem. But then he also adds this little tag, I must visit Rome as well. So Jerusalem is first. He's got to get back there. Part of that, and we'll see it comes up a little bit later as well, is that they have been collecting an offering for the church at Jerusalem. 
And so they need to get back to Jerusalem to deliver this gift that has been collected from all the churches. So they need to complete the mission this way. But also, Paul is saying, my heart and my mind is set on Rome. And in a way, this, this really parallels Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, you may recall that there's a moment when Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem. Remember that? He set his mind to Jerusalem and said, I must go to Jerusalem. And that is the preparation of the suffering of the cross. There was a purpose. There was a large purpose in Jesus' life. And for Paul, he's saying, I need to go back to Jerusalem and then on to Rome as well. Jerusalem to solidify relations with the church. But ultimately, we need to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I need to wrap this up so that I can get to Rome. And when you read in the epistles, his eyes were really beyond Rome, even out into Spain, which in that day was the ends of the earth. I mean, that was the end of where they could comprehend travel taking place to. So Paul is saying the mission, God's gospel, what he has entrusted to me and what the church is all about needs to expand and be taken there. And you hear that in those two little statements that Luke records for us. And Luke understood just how important it was that Paul had his eye on this focus. That in his mind's eye and his heart, he was saying, this is the next steps. He was always moving the church and the gospel forward. Important junctures in the strategy and mission of the church. So itinerary notes, very important to note though because it is about the establishing and the movement of the gospel and of the church. So then we move on quickly to our first highlight section though in chapter 19 verses 23 and following. This, uh, this riot that's about to take place. And if you take note just very quickly, it's verses 23 to 41. Luke takes an incredible amount of time and space to talk about this event. If you want to think about it just in space terms, he's taken the beginning of chapter 19, 22 verses, to talk about Paul's two years of ministry, of miracles, of teaching, of, of the establishment of the church there in Ephesus. He's taken 22 verses, and now he's going to take another 23 verses to talk about this riot. This is an important event, Luke's saying. Some things take place here that, that he wanted us to understand and see what is going on. And so we'll read it through. It really is just a great narrative, and it describes itself. So I'll just make some highlight comments as we read our way through it. So we begin reading in verse 23. It says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And just stop there for a second. The way. What a great description of the movement of Christianity, of the movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is identified as the way. You see this back in Acts 9, verse 2 as well. That's when Saul, Saul as, as that Pharisee who was out to stamp out the church, he went to the religious leaders and he said, would you give me permission and I need letters from you, rep letters of representation, so that I can go and we can deal with this way. Right? So it's being described as the way. And it's really a bit of a pejorative term from them. It's kind of, ugh, you know, they, it's the way. We need to put it aside. From our side of the equation, though, what a great descriptor. 
of what the gospel is all about. It's the way. It's the way because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Many think that's probably where it picked up, that they picked up that somehow as they were sharing this gospel, that they were saying that this is the way to God. It is a new way to eternal life. And so they began to describe it in these terms. And so back in 9-2, you have Saul determined to stamp out the, the way. And now we're coming to another individual who says we need to deal with the way. And so we see that happening. His man, this man's name is Demetrius. We see him right there in the verse 24. We read that a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. And he called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. I mean, what he sees happening with the gospel and the church's expansion. He's saying the influence is going all over the province of Asia. And as he describes it, he says to this group of individuals, he says, and first of all, it's an economic issue for them. He doesn't start off with talking about doctrines or ethics or morality. He starts off and says, we've got an economic problem. It's hitting the local tourism industry, really. You know, it's hitting us as craftsmen because we are not able to sell as, as many of these small shrines that we're building for the goddess Artemis or Diana. See, they were the ones who had a marvelous trade building small silver shrines to her. They were building shrines. They were building plaques. They were building the rings. They were having the mugs with her picture on the side. You know the type of thing, right? This is what they... It was the tourism of industry of their city and had this huge influence, so much so that there was a great number of people who were making their livelihood from this. And Demetrius is at the head of this guild of silversmiths and he calls this meeting together. And look what he says. He says this, that Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Doesn't that sound just like Paul? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the declaration he makes all over. Remember back in Athens, he picked out the idol to the unknown God, and he says, do you know who this idol's for? It is to the living God, the God of creation, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I direct you to him. I need you to know that he is the living God, and he is not found in, in man-made idols. And so they've picked up this message. That Paul's heart of his message is God's made by human hands. Idols are not God's at all. And Paul is making this, this great declaration. And while the real disturbance is an economic one, Demetrius doesn't stop there because he realized that won't sell too far. I mean, it's hard to, to, to get a whole lot of public support behind you when you say, oh, poor me, because, you know, my income is being affected. So what he does is he creates this uh, more respectable motives for concern. Look what he says here. He says, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, 
you know, our reputation as silversmiths is at straight at, uh, at, at odds here, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. John Stott, when he writes, he says this, vested interests were disguised as local patriotism. In this case, all under the cloak of religious zeal. You know, Demetrius says it's our reputations at stake and, and our goddess's reputation is at stake. And the temple, we need to protect the temple. And if we won't, who is going to stand up for her? Are you with me, crowd? Are you with me? Right? And he stirs this group up with this sense of patriotism for who they are as Ephesians, as the protector of the temple, as the protector of the goddess Artemis. And his pitch seemed to go really well with those that were following him. So you see in verse 28, it says, When they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. And the people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. And Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. This very quickly turned into a very dangerous situation. It's hard for us to probably pick it up in, in this, in somewhat brief, although he gives us a lot of details. I mean, Gaius and Aristarchus are picked up, Paul's traveling companions. You see what's happened? They all spill out into the main causeway and head down to this theater. As they have dug up the remains of the theater, they estimate that about 25,000 people could be seated in this theater. And it says the whole city is in an uproar. How many people gathered on this day? So they rush into the main thoroughfare, and as they're going down the road, they're talking about Artemis, great as Artemis. And they see Gaius, and they say, hey, those are two guys that travel with Paul. Grab them. And they must have been thinking, what are we in for? Because this crowd is furious, and there's an uproar taking place. Paul later in Corinthians, in allusions to this, says that he despaired even of life and in the face of a deadly peril in Asia. I mean, his friends and his government leaders said, Paul, don't show your face there. These people are ready to take your life. They are furious, and they've been whipped up into a storm. And they've gathered in the theater. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and the crowd is swelling, and there's yelling, and there's confusion. And you see this in verse 32. It says, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Some didn't really even know why they were there. <laughs> they just got swept up in the excitement of the movement, and it was just kind of like something big is happening. We want to be there. And so there's this mob scene that is happening. People swept along, not really understanding why they are there, but at the heart of it is against the way. I like verse 33. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions for him. And he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. He wasn't thrilled about being there either. 
right? All his friends said, you get up there, you go, you go, you know, get and stand up. And, he, and they're shouting, tell them, you know, tell them this, tell them that. And he motions for their silence. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for another two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See, the Jewish leaders were trying to distance themselves from the way. I'm sure they were getting Alexander up there and saying, tell them we're not part of this. You know, tell them the way doesn't have anything to do with us. The synagogue is different than, you know, Paul was preaching in the lecture hall, not at the synagogue. None of that mattered. Because this mob is whipped into this frenzy. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. This week I was out in the uh, foyer doing something. I could hear in this room, this sudden there was a chant happening in here. And I couldn't quite tell what it was, but I could tell that it was getting pretty intense. And I was like, hey, 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 hey. I'm like, what, what is going on? They've lost control finally. So I came in and they're over in that side of the room and they had all the tables up. I forget what the game's called. What's that game, Isaiah? Hegball. Hegball. I still can't even hear you. It doesn't matter. <laughs> These kids, there's like 30 of them jammed into this little area of tables and they're throwing balls at each other and they got this chant going and I'm sure it was something like, you know, knock him out or, you know, let's kill him. or <laughs> It was something going on like that, right? There was an intensity. And I just got thinking, that's what this room was like. That's what this theater was like. Right, this intensity, nobody really knew what was going on, and it was getting out of control. A riot taking place. Why? Because of a disturbance about the way. The way of Jesus Christ. The gospel that was being proclaimed. The church that was being established. Verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd. Who was that guy? <laughs> it just doesn't identify him. Just the city clerk quieted the crowd. You know, he just kind of walked out. Hey, shh, attention please. <laughs> Don't think so. Somehow his appearance, this is a man of authority. This is somebody who had the weight of the city and the, the security force behind him. He had power because he was able to stand up in front of this crowd and say, all right, quiet down. We need to listen. And this is after hours of the crowd chanting and being whipped into this frenzy. Listen to what he says. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? I mean, that was the story. Most people think it was probably a meteorite that fell and was collected and made into this form. This goddess that fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts, we are the guardian of the temple and she is here among us, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. In other words, Ephesus is doing just fine. Our reputation is intact. We are the guardians of the temple. 
We are the keepers of the goddess. All is well and in control. Whatever story has started to circulate here today is all untrue. And we need to get some control back into this whole situation. And then he says, verse 37, you have brought these men here. So I'm sure he's pouring out Gaius and Aristarchus. We're not told what happened to them, but somehow they were on display. And he says, you brought them here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. In other words, you have no charges. You have no reason for having these people here. Gaius and Aristarchus, man, they must have been, finally, you know, somebody talking some sense here. Somebody that's speaking up for us. So, verse 28, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. In other words, you don't have any criminal charges going on here. If you have a civil case, take it to court. There's a way of dealing with this. This is not the place or the, the forum for, for taking care of this problem that you, you seem to have. So the city clerk is saying, no, this, if you want to make it a legal matter, let's follow the proper channels. And then verse 40, as it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. See, Rome watched over, and the last thing Rome ever wanted was rebellion in their cities. They were very quick to move in if there was a hint of an uprising. If there's a hint of rebellion against Rome, they were very strong and quick to move in and quell it. And the city clerk standing up and saying, whoa, we have got bigger problems. If we continue on this way, we cannot give account for the commotion since there's no reason for it. We need to chill this down. Because there is no government reason for this. This isn't an uprising that could be seen against Rome. This is an interpersonal thing, and we need to get it under control. And verse 41 says, After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. And that's the end of it. That's all we know. So what just happened? An incredible story, Luke. It's fun to read it. It's, you know, it's, full of, it's full of just intense drama that's taking place. But I don't hear the gospel. Jesus isn't mentioned in it. Luke, why did you spend so much time on this? And I want to give you just two observations. First, I think Luke needs us to see that when the gospel gets spread in large, reaching ways, culture starts to shift. People change in the power of the gospel. The Spirit refines people's lives. We are given new birth when we surrender our lives to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. 
And we accept the gift of eternal life that, that is ours by his inbirthing within us, his spirit. And we understand his forgiveness. Our lives and our hearts are shaped in brand new ways to be formed in the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are a changed people. And in that change, our lives become different. And we have a different worldview. And we approach life differently. And culture can change around that. And Luke is saying that while the province of Asia, the word of the Lord has spread widely and grown in power, there are some intrinsic changes taking place in this society because people's hearts are being changed by the gospel. And Luke is saying, you need to recognize that. I mean, look at this riot at the heart of it is because culture has shifted and Artemis is being seen as no God at all. And it's putting some people out of business. Some big changes are taking place. And I mean, the world in chapter 17, verse 6 of Acts is described as being turned upside down by the gospel. And I think Luke is just reminding us, like this is how intense it gets to be. That when the gospel moves into an area, when the gospel moves into a city, into a family, into an individual, Jesus reshapes and refines us. And the issues that we face today, the issues that we see in our culture and our society, we need to understand the gospel can still have an effect on them. But the other side of this is that the way is not a political movement. Change wasn't brought by political means. I mean, that was the whole point of this city clerk who stands up before them and says, whoa, the way, we don't need to worry about them. That's not a political movement that's coming, right? They're not charged with treason or rebellion. It's set on the outside. And I think Luke needs us to understand that as well because Christianity really in this moment is being offered protection, right? So Luke's go or Paul's gospel and the mission of the church is able to continue. It's able to continue and move through Asia and back to Jerusalem and even to Rome, although we see increasing persecution coming. But it's really never a political, in a sense, politically driven. There's a whole lot of other things that take place. See, it's not a political movement. It's a movement of heart. It's a movement of the kingdom of God in people's lives. We need to... We need to stand back and just be amazed that the kingdom of heaven is so great that it changes culture. It changes what is taking place. And Luke takes a long time to give us that incredible picture that says God is great and God is good and his church is a powerful weapon of God's kingdom within this world. And then he moves to another itinerary. <laughs> he says, all of this happened and it was all put aside. And so then we move into the next part of our uh, passage in chapter 20. 
And we have this next itinerary. It says, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria. He decided to go back through Macedonia. I'll just stop there for a moment in this itinerary and just remind you, when you're reading Scripture, you have to think about timelines. I mean, that just took me, what, 30 seconds to read. And Paul has traveled from Macedonia through Greece, down through uh, Syria. And, you know, there's a lot of things happening here. There's a lot of time that takes place. And also remember, this is all taking place on foot. Maybe horseback, maybe a caravan, and by ship. All of these things take a lot of time. We read it through the lens of hopping on a plane, hopping in our car. You know, it takes a couple hours to get from here to wherever. Right? I think we sometimes read it like that. That these journeys are these quick little journeys because it only takes me 30 seconds to read it. So, you know, but these are extended periods of time. And, and you take note, as Luke does for us, you know, some of the time frames that are here of the months and the weeks and the days that are lining up. I just point that out to, be, to keep in mind that what's going on, there's so much going on that isn't said. Churches are being built up. Leaders are being trained. People are being brought into the kingdom. And the future of the church is being established through all of these travels. We keep on going in verse 4. It says, he was accompanied, and we're given this list of people. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Antichius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas where we stayed seven days. Luke is often careful to give us the list of the band of brothers. You know, the traveling companions of Paul. And in this list, he's also very careful to identify where they come from. Do you see the cities there listed? Berea, Thessalonica, Derbe, the province of Asia. This is all the travel that Paul has been on for the last couple of chapters in this missionary journey. And as they're traveling, one of their goals, one of Paul's directives was to be taking up an offering to take back with them to Jerusalem. So at each one of these stops, as churches are being established, as the kingdom is being understood, and that the kingdom is more than just my little city, my little church, I am part of this larger kingdom movement of God, Paul is encouraging an offering to be collected to be taken back to Jerusalem. And all of these individuals that are being named in the cities that they're coming from is where the offering is all being collected in. So you see probably what's happening is each one of these are being entrusted with the bag, with the sack, with the coins to take that offering back. So they have that mission, but they've also been added into Paul's collective.
Okay. So you just see all of those things. So the people are so important in the mission. Right? That's the reminder. That the people are so important to the mission continuing on. So they get to Troas. And they're spending seven days there. And... We don't know what day they arrived, but the next section we move into is this all-nighter that happens at Troas. In chapter 20, verse 7, we begin reading this, that on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I, I take this very personally. I can't help it. I'm being mentioned. And when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. And Paul went down and threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Fascinating story, isn't it? It's one, of, it's one preachers have nightmares about. I always watch our balcony. <laughs> no leaning over the rails during the sermons. Right? Now, this isn't, this isn't about Paul talking on and on, although Luke says he is talking on and on. It was a long night, right? What, what is it about? Why is Luke? We're not even told what Paul was teaching. Wouldn't it have been nice, wouldn't it have been helpful to, if Paul was teaching about you know, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ and the, the depths of the reality of atonement and... We don't know what he was talking about. I assume it was all of that kind of thing. Right? What we're told is this church gathered. It is important to note on the first day of the week. I think one thing Luke does is he wants us to understand that this is where Sunday worship is beginning. He's saying there's a change that's happening in the gathering of the church. These folks are gathering on the first day of the week to come together to break bread. They were gathering on a new day. They were separating themselves from the Jewish synagogue that was taking place on Saturdays. And they were starting to come together on Sunday, the resurrection day. They were coming together in worship of Christ. They were breaking bread together. And what was taking place here is that worship was becoming Christocentric. Jesus is now at the center of it. Jesus is now who they are worshiping. Jesus is the understanding of, of who they are as a people. Jesus is bringing them together. And so as they gather, they break bread, they take communion. And then there is this incredible miracle that takes place. Eutychus, this young man, and it's explained why it happens. They're meeting in the third story room it's late in the evening. There's many candles and oil, oil lamps burning. Have you ever been in a room filled with oil lamps? The air can get kind of heavy. If it's a full room, it was getting kind of hot. He was sitting in the window to get some air, and he nodded off. How many have ever been there in a sermon? You ever nodded off? It's, it's okay. I've done it, right? 
there's sometimes it just happens to us. Well, Eutychus picked a bad spot for it to happen to him because he's in a window and he drops out the window three stories down, crashes to the floor. That'll put an end to a service pretty quick. <laughs> right? I've been in services where some things have happened where you just you can't kind of recover from the service. Last Sunday, I was speaking in New City, and there was a child who got incredibly upset right at the beginning. And it was, it was really, there was a couple of moments where it was going to be either him or me, <laughs> right? Just because the noise he was making, I thought, well, I've either got to quit or he's going to have to quit because we just can't be in competition. Thankfully, he quit. I think it was kind of forcefully because I think he was removed. But anyway, they didn't come and remove me. You know, it's that type of moment. Eutychus falls out the window and the service comes to an end. And they all rush down the stairs. And Paul, looking at this situation, goes and he throws himself on the body. And he wraps himself around this young boy. And he declares, it's okay, he's alive. He's alive. In that moment, I'm sure those who understood the Old Testament pictures of Elijah and Elisha, <laughs> because those were moments with them in resuscitating the dead. Paul is being seen here in an incredible light that God's blessing was so uniquely in these days. That God's blessing in establishing his church and establishing his gospel for all time and for all peoples was allowing this moment to take place so that Paul could be seen and, and demonstrate just the Spirit's power and authority through him to go and rescue this man, Eucas. And he was brought up alive. And then they go upstairs again, and they break bread, and they eat. And what did they do? They talked until morning. <laughs> Right? It, it wasn't enough. Like, whoa, Paul, we're all getting beat. No, they talked till morning. You know what that tells me? They were starved to learn and to fellowship together. And they had just witnessed an incredible miracle. God's power was so evident among them that they just said, who wants to leave? Let's just be here together and fellowship and celebrate in what God is doing among us and encourage each other and pray for each other and be a part of what God is going to continue to do in this place. That's church. That's church. That's my cry for us as a people. That we would understand God at work among us so much that we just don't want to leave. We just want to stay and talk and be a part of what God is doing. You know, we, we try to provide a lot of different opportunities for that to happen. We understand you can't week in and week out be spending all night and all day together. But there's moments we're having prayer times in August. Great time to come together. And just let's be together and celebrate what God's doing among us. We have ministry. We have mission. All of these things. But we need to celebrate often our history and God's blessing among us together. Andrew, you and the team can come back up. We'll just read this last itinerary section together as you're getting ready. We read this last section in chapter 20, verse 13 and on. 
It says there that we then went on ahead to the ship and we sailed for Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made arrangements because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. And the next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. And the day after that we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day arrived at Miletus. And Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. It ends kind of where we started this morning. Paul seeing all these good things that are going on, but he says, I've got to get to Jerusalem. His goal was to be there by Pentecost, to be there at a feast and a fellowship and a festive kind of, a festival time of year when there'd be a lot of people gathered. And so Paul, Paul just, it just shows his drive continuing for Jerusalem, but it also really sets up the next part of Acts chapter 20. Because while they are there in Miletus, he calls for the elders from Ephesus. They're close enough together. He says, come down and see me before I leave. And there's an incredible teaching moment that takes place that we'll be looking at next Sunday. So these itinerary pieces kind of, yeah, they do just kind of move us along in the picture. But it's always, always preparation for what's coming. Father, as we have kind of raced along with Paul today in these passages. We've traveled with him. We've seen a riot. We've seen an incredible miracle at Troas. And Lord, I just pray that by your spirit, would you touch our hearts with something about what you have made the church to be? Now, this is at the heart of all these passages. This is, this is what the church is. To your honor and to your glory, and it's what the gospel does in a, in a family, in a city, in a nation. It changes lives. And God, our hearts ache about our nation. We ache about so many of the, the sinful decisions that get made and, and rules and regulations that we know go against your character and nature. And Father, the solution, we, we should speak out, we should make our voices known, but God, the ultimate solution is for people's hearts to be rearranged, to be brought in line with who you are. And so, Father, help us as a church, as a people together, to be so enthused for your gospel that we, we would just see your miracles of conversion. We'd see your miracles of, of healing. We'd see your miracles of of drawing people to yourself and building your kingdom, a kingdom that will change culture, that will change our nation. And so help us in all these things we pray. Amen.